Hello, friends. Welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. I am Tim Whitaker. If this is your first time listening, thank you for listening. I really appreciate that. On this episode, I interviewed Megan Chance, and I hope I said her last name correctly because there's a T in the front of that last name, but I left that out thinking maybe it's silent because if not, what do you have? To Jance, and that I think is way more awkward. So, Megan, if you're listening, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Megan is an author, and she wrote a book called Women Rising, which is out on May 11, 2021. So, this um, episode releases the day before her book comes out. The book is about uh, women reclaiming their voices. In fact, she even says on the front page of the book, which I'm looking at right now, learning to listen and reclaiming our voice. I think that is so important. And we talked all about this stuff. Megan was really active in overseas missions for a lot of years. So we dive into that and how that experience really changed her life and her trajectory um, going forward in the evangelical church. According to Megan's own book in the back of it, Megan Shantz is a writer and former missionary who is passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. She's the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast and, and an avid traveler. She and her husband, Dustin, live in Northeast Georgia. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. I really appreciate Megan making time, and I hope you get a lot out of it. That being said, before I hand you over to this interview, I have a favor to ask, friends. If you could please give us a rating and a review, that would just do um, wonders for this podcast. I appreciate all the reviews that we are getting. They, they help us out so much. You know, ultimately, this podcast is pretty new. In fact, the New Evangelicals is pretty new. We started this in December 2020, so I don't know what I'm doing, and all I know is that I need a community around me to help make this happen because we are always better together. So if you can give a rating and a review and maybe even share this podcast, that would be huge, huge, huge. So... Yes, thank you. I just want to say that before we get started. Okay, without further ado, here is my episode with Megan. I hope you enjoy it. All right, on this interview, um, I have Megan, which I'm looking forward to talking to you, Megan, about this conversation. Mm -hmm. So thank you for making time to come on the on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you are writing a book. Well, the book is written. It's not out yet as yes. of this recording. When is the mm -hmm. book actually coming out officially? May 11th. Okay. This episode will be out before then or right around that time frame. So okay. you wrote a Perfect. book called Women Rising, and I've seen you already on the podcasting circuit making your way around, which is great. <laughs> so I kind of want to start off with this. I, yeah. This is kind of like just a warm up, but I've always wanted to ask an author this question. How hard is it to write mm -hmm. a book? I've, I always figure like, how do you get all your thoughts together to make sense? And the book's like 200 pages. How yeah. do you do it? <laughs> It's, um, I'll be honest, it's pretty terrible. I, I don't, it, does any author like think it's fun? I, I'm not familiar with them if they are. Um, it's bad, but I think usually the author has something they want to say that drives them to keep talking and keep moving forward. And, and not only is it like a lot of writing, it's a lot of introspection. It's a lot of vulnerability. It's a mm. lot of fear of like, it's so exposing. I've, I've never been more vulnerable and afraid of what people are going to think of me as I am mm. putting out this, this piece of work and having no idea what people are going to think or how they're going to react to it. And um, we'll get into this more, but I obviously come from the conservative evangelical space or that's what I grew up in. And so when I'm writing a book, calling them out, my goodness, I'm a little bit afraid of what my I friends know. and family will think. So <laughs> have you seen my account? Um, I totally can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's hard. If, 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 you know, so this book, Women Rising, what is mm -hmm. like the, you know, the back of the book um, summary? How would you summarize this book? Like what is on your heart that has caused you to go through so much pain and anguish to write a book <laughs> for the world to read? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. I think the pain and anguish that is driving me is the way the church treats women. Mm. Um, to give a, a small backstory, I was a missionary. So I grew up in conservative evangelical church, became a missionary because that's what good girls do. Yes. Um, and it's also like the only thing I could do. I couldn't be a pastor or anything. Mm. So um, I worked specifically with oppressed and sexually exploited women. And I had this encounter with this man who was buying a trafficked woman and he 
was talking to me about the respect that he came uh, to the Philippines is where I was to the Philippines to get the respect he deserved. And uh, I had this moment of realization that he sounded just like almost every evangelical pastor I had growing up. Mm. And I was like, Oh my goodness, the tradition I grew in, grew up in, the tradition I'm still a part of is part of this problem that's driving the oppression of women. And of course, there's so much more to that story. But I wrote this book because I want to get the church to talk about the power dynamics that are given and gender roles and how that contributes to the exploitation, abuse, and oppression of women. Okay, wow. So there is so much there. Um, I want to get into as much as we can in the time that we have, because not only I feel like the book is is very timely based on like even our Mm -hmm. cultural situation. We both know that there's an entire movement of deconstructing Christians. Mm -hmm. And one of the main ingredients is purity culture and the patriarchy, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so for you, was that the moment that broke the camel's back was when you were in, I think you said the Philippines and you heard that person Mm -hmm. say that? Was that the moment where you said, okay, that that is the Mm -hmm. moment I I am making this like a life thing now. We got to talk about this. I would say it's like a slow building. Mm. Um, So like I said, I was a missionary for about five years. So it was the fifth year um, that I heard that. And so I actually worked for an organization stateside. So I went around the world with them for two years. And then three years I worked for them, but continued to lead trips. It was on one of those trips. But I think it was even before that, I was actually having a lot of um, concerns about the organization I worked for in terms of the Mm. way they treated women. And... Um, in 2016, I was very anti-Trump, um, as one yes. can imagine, yep. especially because I am a survivor of sexual assault and mm. I worked, that was my job as I worked with women who were survivors and to okay. have the church support a man who bragged, like, this isn't even like he like, oh, like he didn't, he, whatever, like he like bragged about yes. sexually assaulting women. And as a woman who has been grabbed without her consent, I know Mm. how terrifying that is. Mm. And so that was like the beginning is I remember going to work devastated that he had won and half, um, I worked in the marketing department half the people were like ecstatic and half the people were crushed. And I remember really struggling, crying my way through the day. I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to this trusted leader, Hmm. Um, a man and I to, to, to process this. And he told me that this was God's will. And I think that was the beginning of the end for me. And it was like seven months later when I heard that man say that. And I was like, I'm done. I'm quitting my job. Um, I'm, I'm done. I, I need to, we need to really address the way, uh, the church treats women is complicit in supporting men who brag about sexual assault. Like this is not okay. Yeah. Um, you know, when that happened in 2016, that was a watershed moment for me as well, as far Mm -hmm. as realizing how far away from, from the faith that I called home, I really was, I was far from Mm -hmm. home at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. 80% of like white evangelicals, not Mm -hmm. just like held their nose, but like openly supported voting for him. And when that comment came out, I really thought, well, this is it. Like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. There's a smoking gun. This guy's not good. And to see the Jerry Falwells, you know, and whatever, Mm -hmm. spin it into locker room talk, like you said, incredibly upsetting. And I'm not even mm-hmm. someone who's been sexually assaulted, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm the privileged one here, right? I'm the white mm-hmm. cisgendered male. And so <laughs> if I was upset about that, I can only imagine how survivors um felt mm-hmm. seeing the church that they called home or thought was safe suddenly now is supporting someone who is not safe at all. Um mm-hmm. so I'm I'm with you on that all the way. Mm-hmm. So so you have a situation where okay, now Trump is in you know, evangelicals are fawning over him. Um, mm-hmm. We know that these dynamics are coming up. And then you also have this missions experience as well. Mm-hmm. And so that that has all combined into what we're experiencing now, which is you writing this book. Is that kind of how the right. story goes? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I think, again, it was like a slow growth of witnessing and seeing the oppression of women from mm-hmm. ranging in, in severity from female genital mutilation to sexual assault, to being beaten within an inch of their lives to where I actually had one woman I worked with that was murdered and to understand that this is all based in power differentials. When I, when I understood that abuse, um, sexual abuse, sexual assault is all due to power differentials. I'm like, the church Mm. is the place of power differentials. I grew up with teachings 
that said men are in power, men are in charge, men are better. There was almost like they were making them like gods. Um, yep. Like yep. I needed to trust my husband for yeah. my relationship with God or the men in my life because I, my own relationship wasn't trustworthy. Yeah. And, and this extreme power to differential, I need to submit, be silent, just shut up and do uh-huh. what they tell me to do. Yeah. This was driving the abuse, abuse and oppression of women. So are we, am I surprised that the church is rife with sexual assault? No. Yeah. Yeah. Am I, am I surprised when um, that young guy who was raised in the Baptist tradition killed and murdered women that he viewed as a temptation. Yep. No, this is, this is what you've been teaching. I'm not surprised because this ha- exactly has to do with the power differentials. And if we're talking about purity culture, the idea that women are responsible for the thoughts and actions of men, this is, this is a result of that. And sometimes we see really extreme versions of it play out like the shooting that was just happened that just happened in Atlanta. Yeah. But other times it's just so many women living under the oppression of men in their lives and domestic violence and sexual assault. And, and um, yeah, it's something that we need to talk about and something we need to confront. So um, you don't have to give anything away as far as like mm-hmm. how you grew up or any specifics if you don't want to, but like, how did mm-hmm. you grow up? Was it more of like, was it a certain denomination you were a part of? Like I personally, I grew up in a pretty yeah. like, fundamentalist homes. I was homeschooled mm-hmm. for nine years, mm-hmm. very complementarian view, like of what, of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Were you in a similar boat or were you more in the Pentecostal space? Um, yeah, I can talk about that. So actually my parents divorced when I was like one, I don't remember them being together. So I have no memory of my parents being together. Okay. I, I saw my dad on the weekends and okay. he would take us to church but the same church, so my mom is also a believer, but they want to accept her as a divorced woman, but but they would like embrace my dad. And so the church I went to was wow. non-denominational. Mm. I remember my mom, I remember asking my mom when I was like eight, like, mom, why don't you go to church with us? Or why don't you go to church? And she explained to me, they don't like me there. And so, mm. of course, I didn't understand that at the time or what that meant, but that was still, um, you know, a huge part of my life growing up is going to church every mm-hmm. Sunday um, at this, it was a non-denominational, I don't know why I struggled to get that out, church, <laughs> um, not Pentecostal, just very small, conservative. Um, I was saturated in teachings of purity culture and how to submit yep. to my husband. I remember asking questions like, do animals go to heaven? And they're like, heck no, like animals are evil. I don't know. It was just a <laughs> right. very yeah. weird space and I asked questions and was shut down and um, I wanted to be good of course like everyone wants to be good and so if my role as a woman is to shut up sit down cover up I'll do that for God but it always felt wrong it always felt like a violation of my my spirit but at the same time I've been raised my whole life to believe that my body is not trustworthy, mm-hmm. that I am easily deceived as a woman. Yep. So when I had these questions or doubts or like, this is actually really wrong, rise up. I was told to submit to the men in my life and trust right. their opinion on the matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually think it was through my mission work when I saw so many other women living under similar ideas and it leading to extreme and gross injustice that I realized my goodness, these teachings are responsible for this. And this is something that's not just here in the United States, not just in the conservative evangelical church. This is around the world. Mm. Um, like I've, I've been to many countries, um, uh, either traveling or working with women sure. and while food culture, you know, houses, everything else has changed. Nothing. The one thing that hasn't changed is that women are viewed and treated as objects. And that has been true for every place that I've been in. Women are constantly fighting to be seen as pure human beings. And um, Hmm. yeah, so my tradition definitely taught me that I was less and that I needed to submit to men in my life. And uh, unfortunately, that teaching is not just in the church it's, it's a patriarchy. It's, it's, it's the world, at least in my experience, it's the world. Yeah. It makes me, it makes you wonder, um, like a chicken or the egg situation of like, Mm -hmm. what is influencing what, right? Like, is it, 
uh, for lack of a better term, the world influencing the church, or is it the church <laughs> yeah. influencing the world, or is it maybe kind of both? And like, you know, you obviously are pretty yeah. experienced around the world. Mm-hmm. Have you? Because like, what, what I would say is off the top of my head is like, oh, this is a great mm-hmm. example of like the white evangelical church exporting its patriarchal mm-hmm. beliefs to other parts of the world. But I also mm-hmm. know that that the rest of the world doesn't live like us, and that they have different mm-hmm. perspectives as well. So, do you see this as like a cultural thing, or more of like the church is kind of influencing cultures to see women this way? I think it's both. Okay. Um, so let me give two examples. So one example is, uh, so a lot of times we would be partnered with different churches overseas. And a lot of those churches were started by white evangelical missionaries. So in that way, it's a direct export. And so I actually talked to a pastor recently and there's this, he is actually an incredible pastor in Kenya fighting for equality for young girls. Mm. His name is Stanley. And I, I forgot his, I can't pronounce his last name correctly. So I'm just to say his first name is Stanley. And he told me that he had, um, he empowers women in his church and his space and little girls. And he had white Americans come over and reprimand him for having women leadership in the church. So that's one example of the church, the white evangelical church spreading those patriarchal tentacles, I guess, around the world. But also we have to understand there's an incredible book that just came out um, probably whenever this podcast released. I got early access to it. It's a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. Mm. And she talks about how even this idea of patriarchy, specifically what we're seeing in the conservative evangelical tradition, is actually more influenced through history than it is through the Bible and through men trying to protect and um, hoard their power. So if we're talking, Mm. where did this idea of men kind of being the rulers of the household, um, being in charge of everything, that actually came after the Reformation. So if you're familiar with the Reformation, Mm -hmm. um, it went from uh, the priests were in charge and like, that's how you got to God was through the right, priest. Right. But after the reformation, while a lot of good things happened, it now made kind of the, the men, the priests of the home. Ah. And so that's how huh. it kind of continued. And of course we wow. see these, these, these historical movements like fluctuate, like for example, the feminism, like in a response to the feminist movement of the seventies, yeah. then we see this huge back at uh, like backlash in the conservative evangelical church yes. in the eighties, where it's very much traditional focus on the family comes right. up. James, all that I was going to say James Dobson, Mark yes. Driscoll. I was just telling mm-hmm. you before we recorded, I just finished mm-hmm. Jesus and John Wayne. And this is where, yeah. you know, like she yeah. tells that story. So it's so mm-hmm. well written because it's such a narrative of like, mm-hmm. here's all the parts and like, here's mm-hmm. all the backlash. So you're absolutely mm-hmm. right in seeing that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have this thing happening to you. Like, okay, I, mm-hmm. I, is it safe to say you were kind of like deconstructing? Is that a good way of, can we, can we use a terminology or maybe a little bit different here? Yeah, you could you? say I was deconstructing probably from the age of, pro- in college, I think I started deconstructing because I remember I was at church. I was very church going my whole life. Yeah. Um, and I was at church in college and we had the, I loved our college church. It was called the annex in Boulder, Colorado. And, um, we had a woman who gave a, a sermon and I had my good friend. I thought he was my good friend, <laughs> literally get up and walk out. And wow. I, yeah, he's like, the Bible says I can't learn from a woman. And I, it was so shocking to me oh, because man. I thought we, wait, I'm a woman. I thought you respected me. Like, do you not? I, it was very confusing to me, but that's when I started to really question some things right. um, be, because I, you know, I had been taught that her preaching was bad, but I also thought she was better than the normal guy. And <laughs> it was, I don't know. It was just so interesting. So I think I started questioning there. I remember asking questions in my um, core group, my small group in college and my youth group leader or my whatever the mentor lady said, Megan, are you even a Christian? Cause you asked too many questions. And so I think I was always questioning, always deconstructing, but still trying to maintain being liked, being approved of yes, being accepted totally. because the church was everything to me. So I was afraid yes. to ask those questions because I saw what happened when I asked those questions. Yes. And I think it was only accelerated through seeing the the results of these teachings and the way they affected women. So I think I've been deconstructing for a very long time. 
Yeah, I mean, so, when you put it, I mean, listen, I very much feel a yeah. lot of those sentiments, right? Mm-hmm. Like your community's here and you kind of feel yourself drifting away from your community on like a theological right. level, but you want to keep your community because th- those right. are the people that know you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a weird tension that you tend to be in. So, right. you know, so you're in college, you have these thoughts. I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of pushback were you getting as you started to really speak out? Because it sounds like you had this moment where you're like, I'm not going to be silent anymore, right? Like, I got to yeah. talk about this, no matter what, what the cost would be. What kind of pushback did you get from like friends, family, your church, et cetera? Yeah. So I would say that I didn't get a ton of pushback because I don't. So when I was starting to ask these questions, I had no context. I, like Rachel Held Evans, all of those people had, I don't know if they were even writing yet, but if they were, I didn't have access to their materials. So I couldn't get too, I guess, heretical. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't until <laughs> the first time I read um, Rachel Held Evans book, um, what was it called? It's her on the roof, the the bi- biblical something biblical womanhood. But I'm messing it up with that Beth Allison Barr's book. But it was this whole idea where she lived as a the a biblical woman. It was a, definitely a very oh, feminist. My book. wife read that book. It was about um, yeah, what is it a, a year of biblical uh, womanhood. That's yes, it. yes, yes. I that's it. it. That's so. exactly it. And so that's. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, So I read that book when I was actually doing missions for the first time on the race. And I was also reading this book called Half the Sky. And so I was slowly making these connections. And that's when I started to push back more and more. And I think when it started to get really bad was around the time of Trump's election. For sure. And my 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 organization um, was using sexist language Mm. and a lot of the marketing people pushed back against it, but they weren't hearing us. And so I asked my boss, like, what can I do? And he's like, well, ask the founder or like the CEO guy. And so they had this like setting called the fireside chats where you were allowed to ask senior leadership what they were doing. And so he was going on about the sexist language that he was using. And I raised my hand and I said, does this term include women? And he went off the handle. He got very mad, started making fun of me in front of this room of like 60 people. He started talking about how he wasn't, he loved women and he wasn't racist, which had nothing to do. Male fragility, man. Yes. Yes. It was (laughs) bad. (laughs) Yeah. And so I remember like he went off on me and just being like so scared and like singled out. Like I'm the good girl. I was like the, you know, before that I was like, the one that leadership loved. And like, I was the teacher's pet kind of. And so this was the beginning of that. And uh, I had people come up to me afterwards and said, Megan, that was a really good question. He handled it super improperly. And so I sent an email and so did these other people that thought he handled it really poorly to him, was able to get the language change, yay for women. But in the end, he sat me down and told me I was wrong to ask that question because I asked it out of offense. As if I, I don't know. Anyways, and so I remember, like, win. okay, this is a win. I know. I proved that this, that this was biblically incorrect. I, you know, I won, and I was wrong right. because I wasn't supposed to question. I guess male. Authority. You're wrong because you're a woman, Megan. That, that yes, is why you're exactly. wrong. Like, that's what it comes down to, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. My goodness. And so before I got, and so the, I was also engaged at this time. My in-laws wanted me to put obey in my vows, and I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not a dog. I didn't say that to them like directly, but I was just like, didn't say anything. Like I'm not putting that in there. And then I started getting more outspoken because right Mm -hmm. um, after I got married, I quit my job and um, started the podcast called Faith and Feminism. And they got very mad and trolled me. And um, this is your, these are your in-laws? My in-laws. Yeah. They trolled me and then, and then they would troll my social media and then they'd send Dustin emails about like, basically get your wife in line kind of thing, my husband. And um, he's like, stop trolling them. I had to block them. It, it, it ended up exploding to such an extent that we canceled like plans home for Thanksgiving. It was actually super emotional and terrible because Whoa. my, yeah, my husband thinks they got radicalized like after his childhood. Cause he had a good childhood and it, it was like, he wasn't even recognizing the way they were behaving. And so then like, we didn't talk to them for like a year. It was terrible. And I, and I, it's funny, I tell the story and I laugh, but it's kind of, kind of like, cause I'm still like shocked mm. and 
not sure how to handle it. And I also had wow. one of my best friends send me an email after. So during the Kavanaugh hearings, I wrote a blog about how I believe Dr. Ford and how Christians need to respond better to sexual assault and yes. not victim blame them. Right. And she sent me on my 30th birthday, she sent me a message saying that she could not support me anymore because she couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda. Oh, there so it is. Oh, the liberal agenda. Yeah. The ultimate yes. slur. You progressive <laughs> <Yes>. Marxist. <laughs> yes. Which was so hurtful to me because this girl yes. had been my friend since high school. She knew how I cared about women. And I just felt so, so completely minimized, reduced yes. to something that I wasn't, how could you even reduce me to something like the liberal agenda when I'm just trying to believe women? And also why is women's rights liberal? Like, shouldn't you be questioning your own right. party? Like, <laughs> who makes these so, rules, right? <laughs> right. So that was actually, this all happened at the same time, canceling home fl or flights to see his in-laws. I'm getting these messages, like just a, like, the Kavanaugh hearings, like a flurry of stuff going on. And I remember it was my birthday and sobbing yeah. in a Starbucks and running out oh. to my car and sobbing in the car yeah. and just so badly that I can't even see out my window. I can't drive. And so I'm just sitting there like doubled over in sobs. And this is the crazy part. This there's, I hear this knock on my window and it's this woman. I've never seen her before. And I'm also like covered in snot and mascara. <laughs> and she like is motioning me to get out of the car. And I'm like, this is cr like what? Right. I don't I don't know what to do. And so <laughs> I like wipe my hands like on my dress like and I get out and yeah. she immediately just like pulls me into a hug. And she says, I'm wow. not going to let you leave until you know how loved you are. And she said, God is with you. God is with you. God sees you. And it was such a profound experience for wow. me because when I felt so rejected in the name of God from yeah. this dear friend and my in-laws and all of these other people, like I was not Christian enough. I was bad. I was the liberal agenda. Right. I was being rejected in the name of God, but yet God came and met me wow. and showed me a completely different version. And that whenever I start to like doubt when I get these haters or hate mm. mail or whatever, yeah. I'm like, God is with me. Like mm. God sent this random lady that I sobbed in her chest for like, I don't even know how long as coffee people looked on, <laughs> right, like right. just staring at us. Right. And I just feel like it was God, like it was God with skin on. And yeah. so while I have endured a lot of pushback and, uh, de and went through so much deconstructed with uh -huh. what I've raised with, I, I'm not, I don't feel far from God because yeah. I know that God yeah. cares about justice and I know God is with me. And so, um, I mean, that was a really long answer to your question. Yes, I've received pushback, but God has met me there. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com slash podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. So I yeah. may or may not be a little water eyed, you know, or watery <laughs> my eyeballs over here because that is just such like a powerful story of mm -hmm. how like, you know, this person who's representing God well, right, yeah. is giving you like this divine hug mm -hmm. and just yeah. saying like, hey, from human to human, the divine in me being passed to you, like yes. it's going to be okay. And you're like, yeah. thank you. Because when you are told your whole life that God is one way, and you mm -hmm. start rethinking that it does, mm -hmm. it triggers like the uh, inner sense of self, right? Like that right. identity is like so shaky all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So to have someone say like, no, God is in this part of it too. Yeah. It's like, okay, like that's, that's like reassuring, right? And so mm -hmm. your husband obviously is like, that's his family. That's got to <laughs> be tough for, I mean, it's definitely tough yes. for both of you, right? But when, when, it, when right. it's your biological family, it's different, mm -hmm. right? right? So like, is he just like losing his mind? Is he like, is, is he torn? Is he just like, this is crazy? What is he thinking when this is happening? 
Um, I think it was, it was hard for him in the beginning because I immediately spotted, I was like, I have like, I don't know, conservative mean radar. I don't know how to say it. Like I knew from the beginning that his parents were this way because, Uh, mm -hmm. um, I saw something that he didn't see, but he's just going back to his childhood. And so it took him, it was, I mean, he was defending me and on my side, but he's like, oh, they just don't understand. Like, we'll just talk to them more. And then he would talk to them more and it'd be the biggest shit show that has ever happened. And like, and so that was really hard for him. And then he had this realization, like they are not, they're not the same people that raised me. And that Mm. was really hard because he felt like his memories are getting tainted. Like these really good childhood was now like feeling shaky like it like what he thought he knew and so that um he was already deconstructing like went before we met and but that really I think set him over the edge and so he had a he's you know seen a therapist we both see a a therapist I'm all about therapy Um, I just saw my last week like see (laughs) your therapist people oh yes (laughs) so especially if you're going through deconstruction because I think we've been told like what you said, like if God is against us, like, like there's nothing worse. Right. That is the worst. It is the worst, but to know that God is with us is so important. But yeah, so he started seeing a therapist, you know, and I see a therapist and there's, it's interesting because like, I want to say things are all better. Like we've, we've set boundaries. Um, um, and he talks to them about like football and whatever he yeah. used to talk to, like very shallow. Yeah. Um, but every time we've had to have a deeper conversation, it's really gone terribly. And, um, I just don't, res- I, they, they send group texts, like happy Easter. Like, for example, we got one on Easter, I guess that was yesterday. Yesterday. It was like a <laughs> Only <baby>. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like a baby, like 10, 10 fingers and 10 toe, toes from the grave. Jesus rose and it's a picture of a baby. So we get that okay. kind of thing. Right. Um, I, I have made a decision not to respond and I, not to say I won't talk to them, but it, I still feel myself getting triggered and feel really unsafe. And so for him, he does feel like he is in a place where he can have shallow conversation with them and does talk to them about shallow conversation, but it has been a very hard journey for him as well. Um, And I think, I think so much was that they were, they thought we were going to hell or think we're going to hell. And so it, totally. they're trying to love us well by saving us from hell. Exactly. My my parents are same thing. Very good people. My dad's got Mm -hmm. a little more radicalized over the past couple of years Mm -hmm. and God bless them. Like we have a healthy relationship with them. They're, they're good people. Mm -hmm. But like that fear is if we don't believe right, we're going to burn forever. And so right. that's where so much of that comes out of, right? Mm-hmm. And it is like it's really tricky waters when you're like you're I'm married too for almost five yeah. years now. And like you have to realize that, that like your family is now your wife and your your children, mm-hmm. if you have any, it's not mm-hmm. who raised you. That's like a right. weird it's just a weird thing to think about yeah. in the time process, you know, mm-hmm. um as an as an adult. So um, I also find it kind of interesting too that and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the conversations with those types of people and with churches would be so different if we if they would just hold space for us. Because I hold space right. for those kinds of people. Like I have friends mm-hmm. who I'm not trying to convert. I'm not telling them, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I right. think that you really sucked in the conservative mm-hmm. Kool-Aid and you're going down to hell. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's room, there's space made in my circle for those kinds of people. But yeah. it seems like when it's when it's on the other side, like when you're too feminist yeah. or too whatever, yeah. there's just no room for you allowed at that, that table. Mm-mm. And I don't know why that is. Well, so I'm going to reference the making of biblical womanhood again. So Beth Allison Barr talks about how gender roles, these biblical gender roles have like, they've basically written them into the gospel. So this whole idea that, um, you know, the way they did that is they said, you always hear these analogies or something they're trying to do is like, God is to Jesus. It's like kind of like Jesus is submissive to God. Yes. Yes. Like God, Jesus is subservient to God, which is totally heretical. Right. Cause right. like three persons, like if he's fully God, then he's not submissive to God, right. but they kind of, they kind of like turn this into the idea that, okay, God is like the head and Jesus is the hand, I don't know, something else. And they're trying to do that with women as well. So if the man is the head and women are constantly eternally submissive and subservient, just like Jesus. And so of course this is problematic, but she talks about how many churches have actually almost written this into the belief of Jesus. And I didn't understand it forever too, because I didn't understand 
I thought his parents would be happy. Like I'm a missionary that works like who believes in women's rights. Like this is my biggest flaw, you know, women, right, women right. quality. Right, right. And it's just undoable for them. And yeah. it was undoable for them. I don't know if they've changed since we haven't had a, a conversation specifically about that in a long time, but it felt like because I believe that women could teach or lead or preach that I was actually believing in their words in a different God. And and yes. I started to come like, well, maybe we do. <laughs> I, at first yes. I found that really offensive, but now I'm like, actually don't think I have, my Jesus has a lot in common with your Jesus. Yeah. It is very interesting to see how that um, world, the MacArthur's, the Pipers, the Driscoll's mm-hmm. like that, that whole bubble that is, Mm-hmm. huge in Christian culture, right? Right. They are, that is like a non-negotiable for so many mm-hmm. of them. You start talking yes. about, you know, not just equality, but equity. You start talking mm-hmm. about women's rights and they're going to link mm-hmm. you back to feminism and then somehow we'll get to socialism and that will turn to Marxism right. and turn, mm-hmm. turns out you're a big liberal who hates God and, you know, yeah. you, you have a very low view of scripture. But it is interesting mm-hmm. because um, there's, what's the book? Oh, Scott McKnight wrote a great book called The Blue Parakeet. Mm-hmm. And in the book, mm-hmm. he gives, I think, the best argument I've ever heard for um, for women being elevated to a very equal role of teaching and leading. He talks about the uh, the problem with Junia. I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're, if you're familiar oh, with, yeah. with the oh, yeah. big controversy, you know, of Junia, <laughs> yeah. Junius. You know, and he po- yeah. when, I, when I first heard that, I go, wait, you're telling me that other men at some point rewrote the name Junia mm-hmm. to a, a male name because the mm-hmm. idea of a woman being an apostle was like so crazy to them. I mean, that's how. Right. Far, some people will go to mm-hmm. to keep the patriarchy and keep sexism mm-hmm. alive and well. Is that they mm-hmm. will rewrite parts of the Bible yes. to fit the agenda? That mm-hmm. that is crazy. Yeah, it actually has happened. I mean, there's the Junia Junius one, but there's actually other instances in the Bible where they change the wording that might be feminine or even. Um, both like, so all encompassing, like all genders and they change it to masculine. That's actually quite common where Bible translators have changed wording that was meant for all people and making it specifically masculine or even words that were feminine, making them masculine. Um, So yeah, it's, I mean, Wow. It's 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 studied scholars. Beth Allison yes. Barr talks about it in the. I yes. mentioned that for the third time, but there's so many good resources out there that should, there's actually yeah. um, they change things, and also not only that, but they um, Mary Magdalene. Like there's even different versions of her that have been changed. There's a, a scholar named Libby Schreider or Schrader um, who talks about this in a lot better way than I can, but kind sure. of the way they they wrote about Mary was to like lessen her. Hmm. Um, and it's not original to true scriptures. And wow. so, yeah. So that again, there's, her name is Libby Schrader and you can look her up, but she has a paper on it. She's getting her doctorate at Duke Divinity School. Um, but there's a lot of instances of this, of, and the thing that drives me crazy is they're like, a plain and simple reading of the Bible <laughs> I know. shows I know. that women are supposed to be submissive to men. I know. And they say that as if there's like a plain and simple reading ever makes sense because wasn't Deborah leading a nation and wasn't Phoebe a deacon right. and wasn't Mary Magdalene an apostle. You are like, this is not right. plain and simple because nope. what you're doing. And then they say that, right. They say that, but then you talk to them about the rich young ruler. I'm like, okay, well, if we're saying it's literal and plain and simple, you should give away everything you have and give it to the right. poor. Right. Like, no, 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 no. That, right. Was, right. that was to that one guy, that specific <laughs> context. Totally. You're on the money. Only there. Yes. Yeah, and so like for me that's just a clear example like their value is not a plain and simple reading of scripture their value is how do i protect and preserve my power that i already have yes and so i that also drives me crazy like never talk to me about a plain and simple reading of scripture because it's not simple it it, it is maybe one of the biggest lies of the evangelical movement is that is the idea that well the bible is clear about what yeah about what (laughs) like you can find a verse to support anything yeah you know like jesus you know yes. love your enemies well not all your enemies mm-hmm. we should be bombing other countries right. like right. it really comes down to the reality that all of us 
pick and choose what is applicable today. Mm-hmm. We all do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so on, on that wavelength with you. Even today, I, mm-hmm. I wrote a, my, my post today, actually, on my account at the time of this recording was, it was something like to the effect of whenever someone um, tells you the Bible is crystal clear or absolutely, you know, or, mm-hmm. or that they're standing on the truth of God's word, remind mm-hmm. them that there are over 45,000 global denominations in 400 English translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then ask mm-hmm. them, which absolute truth are we standing on here? You know, because right. you have all these denominations claiming to stand mm-hmm. on the absolute truth of God's word mm-hmm. who all don't agree. So right. I'm with you on all of that. Um, I want to kind of mm-hmm. dive in maybe a little bit to the book side because obviously mm-hmm. you're here because you wrote a book and it's coming out and we should all be reading <laughs> yes. it at some point. And I want to yes. give you plenty of time to talk about it because mm-hmm. I'm going through some of these chapter titles, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, God's Order, Bound by Tradition, mm-hmm. Climbing Blind, mm-hmm. Raised by a Pimp. That's provocative. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, so this this book, it seems like it, it's a pretty, is it like a pretty high level overview of like patriarchy as a whole? Or do you kind of focus on like one part of it? Like, how would you describe the the story of the book that, that you're trying to tell? Yeah. So I actually fought for it to be a memoir. So it's basically my story. Okay. Um, most publishers to give you a little into the publishing thing, but they like nonfiction more like essay form. Like yeah. here's a series of like most nonfiction books you read. Right. Memoirs apparently are not as attractive um, because sometimes it's hard to get people to care about like who cares about so-and-so story. But right, the reason right. I fought for it to be a memoir is because I am praying and hoping that people see themselves in my story. Mm. So I was raised in the conservative patriarchal white savior mm. mentality. Yeah. And I was that. And then, and to, and to say that I wasn't that is, is a lie. I, I did have white saviorism. I did have mm. white supremacy. I'm still working out those elements in myself. Right. But I think a lot of us, but can relate. Well, this was actually what we were taught is good. Um, and so in my story, I talk about missions work and confronting sexism and extreme power differentials on the field, deciding, you know what, maybe I should do something about this to um, encountering female genital mutilation and noticing the traditions and the patriarchal norms that came hand in hand with those um, extremely dangerous procedures and then getting my white saviorism called out. And then just, Mm. again, so just, it's mainly my, you know, raised by a pimp as i worked with a young girl who was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. So she was in the sex trade in, in India and had been trafficked. Her mother had been trafficked from Nepal. Um, and then, you know, I worked with widows. I worked with all of these women and, and through listening to their stories, noticing the same gender kind of norms of themes is, mm. and, and, and realizing that my church, whoa, this is, this is very similar to what I grew up in and was taught was good, mm. but I'm seeing this is really harmful to you and it's harmful to me. And there's an incredible quote by Lilla Watson, who is an indigenous activist in Australia. And she says, if you have come to help me, I don't need your help, but if you've come because my liberation is bound in yours and let us work together. Mm. Um, so this whole idea is I think sometimes like even with white saviorism, like, oh, I'm here to help you. No, my liberation is also rooted in your liberation. Mm. And I'm learning the idea that we're not anyone's savior. We're here to learn yeah. and look at systemic problems. And so for me, it's the story of seeing things in an individual way as I was taught individual sin, you know what you're yes, taught about. Like, totally. Why did that pastor assault that woman? Right. Well, we was struggling individually. It's a one-off. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we see the story again. Right. Again, <laughs> Man, a lot of one-offs again. around here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so yeah. we have to ask the question, why is this happening all of the time? Uh, right. There's an incredible quote by Nelson right. Mandela. It says, mm. um, why do we ask, like, why, why do we ask Oh gosh, I'm messing it up. I'm gonna Google it real quick. Hopefully, Go ahead, maybe Google you can it. This out. You're fine. <laughs> um, Google is the answer for everything. So. <laughs> yeah, Nelson. <laughs> it's a quote about the river. Um, quote. It's like, why do we keep um, keep pulling people out of the river instead of asking them why they're falling in? Mm, it's something like that. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, I actually can't find it because he has a lot of quotes right now. <laughs> That's a good point. It's um, like, which quote do you want from Nelson Mandela? You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but, yeah. So this idea of like, we keep on not addressing the root cause, the systemic 
issues that are causing these problems. The reason why this is happening again and again and again and again is because we have gender norms that promote enormous power differentials that cause harm both to women and also to men and to all genders involved because even these norms hurt men because it keep, I mean, if we're looking at violence of men, like there's a look at mass shootings, like the last 118, 114 of them have been men. Why is that? Why right. are we seeing men being the predominant inflictors of violence? Well, I totally. think that has a lot to do with the gender norms they've been taught that the only acceptable way they can experience their emotions is through yes. anger. Yeah. And they don't have the tools and resources to process or even allowed to on a masculine script to process their grief or their hurt or their anger or their sadness. It always has to come out looking like you're tough, you're in control and you're right. angry. And so yeah. I saw that these gender role scripts was driving men to purchase women and it was it was it was leading to oppression of women and so these gender role scripts are not helpful um and that's my that's my story is realizing that realizing my complicity unlearning unlearning deconstructing my white saviorism and these gender roles and all of this stuff to come in what I think is the heart of Jesus's message, which is yeah. Jesus, uh, um, justice and inclusion yes. and bringing in people from the margins and being on the side of the oppressor and calling out the, you know, uh, the principalities and powers of patriarchy and racism that are yeah. so present in our church. Yeah. And I feel like we've changed these, these terms like principalities and powers. I was raised to believe it was like demons and right. Satan. It's like, no, it's real power structures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like very clear. Right. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't right. say it's very clear. Right. Good, good point. I think, <laughs> I think it means that we should talk about uh, you know, racism, that's a power in principality or patriarchy. That's certainly a power in principality. And so it's its this my story of growing up, being entrenched in that, unlearning it, learning to listen to other people's stories, letting their stories change me, and then changing the way I behave. There's another incredible quote. I will quote people all day by Maya Angelou. And it says, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And that mm. is my story of of learning to listen, to know better and do better. And then it's a call to the church, like be yep. better, yep. stop perpetuating harm. It's yeah. not okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what's your favorite chapter in the book? Um, <laughs> I think it's chapter 16. Um, I'm it's, looking it up. I have it right here. Okay. Uh, Revelation. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, Okay. Well, I just think I suck it to the man. <laughs> I do not hold back <laughs> any punches. I'm, <laughs> <ready>. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just, I don't hold any punches. It's the moment where like, cause you hear um, story after story of oppression here, but it's the, it's the moment that I bring it all together and realize that it is the gender roles. And so hmm. it's the story of this one night I was, um, I was partnering with a ministry that took girls or gave girls the opportunity or women the opportunity to leave uh, sex trafficking or the sex trade and and get a college education. So my my job is to partner with local Filipino women and tell them about this. Um, I'd have like a translator sometimes. A lot of these women would speak pretty good English. Mm. And I'd talk to these women about this opportunity. And so I was talking to this one woman and the story that you'll hear, at least the story I heard again and again and again in the bars in the Philippines is that um, oftentimes it's a woman who has many dependents. So that could be children, siblings, whatever, um, who is trying to provide for them and has so few options that this is like the best way she can provide for her children. Sometimes they think they're just going to be working in a restaurant or a bar and then slowly realize that's not actually what this entails. Hmm. Um, Sometimes they're trafficked by their family, like their family literally puts them in there. Um, Sometimes like um, that, like in this case, the woman I was talking to, it was her boyfriend who was kind of like forcing her. And she was showing me like, it was her first night there. She had a young child she was trying to provide for and, and an abusive boyfriend. And she was showing me her, her where she had cigarette burns on her body from him wow. and how he was like tying her, you know, wanting her to work there. And as I was talking to her, these six drunk men came up and they wanted to buy her. And generally the way that the system is set up there is it's the girls are usually on stage. Um, 
and like underwear, like they're usually honestly trying to cover parts of their body. You can tell that they're really wow. not comfortable with where they are. Right. And then men, men point to them with like a laser and that's how you get the woman. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's, it's pretty, it's very messed up. And, and I think like maybe even if they looked like they were comfortable at all with this, but they're not, they, they're like, they, there's like blasting loud music, but they're clearly very uncomfortable and not don't want to be in that situation and the way we talk to the woman is the same as we have to get a waitress and be like i would like to talk to that woman and then she gets a laser and you see every time like there's a laser show on like just dread and um oftentimes they'll like push each other into like oh it's you like that got the laser Uh, so it's just really sad and so wow Yeah. So I was talking to her and these six drunk men wanted her. So they weren't doing it how they should in quotation marks. Like no one should, this should not be a thing at all. Right. Um, And she, I I said, do you want to go with them? And she said, no. And Mm. she said no to them. And I, and I said no to them. And these men were not taking no for an answer. And they started grabbing her, like trying to pull her with them. And I didn't know what to do. And I had a teammate run over. I'm like, why don't you just buy her before they can? And so I pulled out 60 bucks, which is how much it cost. And um, I said, we would like her for the night. And uh, so she was like, okay, thank you. I'm going to go home and be with my child now. And as she was leaving, these men still tried to take her. And so I, I ended up getting in a fight with like the bar managers, me and my teammate got in a fight with the bar managers, won our argument and said, okay, like, um, she's ours. She's ours for the night. And these men just got more and more angry. And in their anger, just grabbed another woman off the stage. And so while I got to see this one woman get to go home to be with her kid, this other woman just looked at back at us in terror as these men like walked and like pulled her along. And she just like looked at us like she was terrified. And I remember in that moment feeling like I made the situation worse because Mm. not only not only was this woman taken, but now these men were angry and I had made them angry. I I felt like, you know, I made the situation worse because angry men are a lot worse than just drunk men. Right. And I had had, by that point, I had a friend uh, or I guess a woman that I had worked with, maybe friend is too strong of a term because there's a language barrier, but she um, was actually murdered by clients. And so I felt like, I made this worse. And I remember Mm. collapsing into the street and and sobbing, like, what are we even doing here? If like, we might be able to help one woman, but she's so quickly replaced. And, and are we even helping? Is this even helpful? Right. And, um, really starting to have like that crisis of faith. And this is again, after I started deconstructing a lot. And, um, the next night was when I ran into, these American guys who told me that they came to the Philippines because women here are raised right and they know how to respect men and the women in the United States don't give me the respect I deserve. And this is literally what this man is telling me. I come here to get the respect I deserve. And I remember just, Oh my God, like this, this is what my pastor says. This is what Emerson Eggert's, the most popular marriage book, Love and Respect. This is all about men getting respect and being entitled to this respect. Hmm. Like we are responsible. I am responsible for not addressing this power differential and this harm. And so I actually quit my job. I was, I was getting married in three weeks. I quit my job and, and uh, started a podcast called Faith and Feminism, wrote the book because we have to stop being complicit. There's so many times in the Bible that um, God talks specifically in Isaiah. It's like, I don't hear your worship. I don't hear your prayers. Go right. wash your hands. Your hands yeah. are bloody. I don't want any of it until mm-hmm. you care about justice. And I think it's Amos it, five. It's like yeah. one of the best parts of scripture ever. Yeah. And well, it's also in Isaiah and it's also Jesus says, um, when he's calling out the Pharisees, he says, you give a 10th of your spices, but you've neglected mercy and justice. This is more important. Right. And, And so for me, it was like, we're here. I mean, in my past, like all about evangelism, just tell about Jesus and the problem is fixed. No, actually we're exporting enormous power differentials. This man literally came to purchase trafficked women to get the respect that he deserves. Like this is 
a problem. Mm. And then if we look at the church, these, you know, like how I, we already talked about sexual like abuse and assault that happens there. And so, yeah, I quit my job. I started a podcast called faith and feminism and wrote the book because this book is important. And, and, and I pray that people see themselves in me and learn from my mistakes. But I also pray that we really start to look at our own complicity. Cause I don't just talk about my complicity in patriarchy. I talk yeah. about it in racism and yeah. white saviorism and yeah. even the way we view taxes, right? Like I grew up in the conservative church yeah. and they, and they are so against any kind of social programs, right? They're like, just yeah. defense of our military, which is like, right. how did we get here? Jesus. Or, you know, uh, corporate war, uh, uh, welfare that works too, yeah. you know, like yeah. we can subsidize all the rich people, they right. have no taxes for them. <laughs> yeah. But if you help, like there's this, you know, people like welfare Queens and all these totally. other things, like they hate social programs. Yep. But the thing is like these social programs, we need to change our idea. Like there's so much research such as these social programs, like, the war on crime is not the war on crime. It's the war on poverty. Yep. Crime is a result of poverty and we're keeping people poor. And so we need to look at our hands. What do we, where, what do we do with our money? What do yeah. we vote for? What, where do our taxes go? Where does our church's donations go? Totally. Are they just going to a country club to get more like a bigger building with more air conditioning yes. and more like yes. flag machines? Right. right. What is it actually doing to support the community and to right unjust systems. And so for me, it was just looking at my hand. I feel like that night with her was like looking at my bloody hands and asking myself, what am I going to do about it? If my, if my hands are bloody, how can I make them clean? And I think the only way you can do that is to confront unjust systems. Yeah. And I, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is like, we clean our hands by repenting. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, what like Christianity right. 101 is. Right. It is interesting to me, though, how many people in the evangelical movement don't see that as like a core mm -hmm. foundational principle for their institutions, right? Like, they'll right. preach a very heavy focus on the individual repenting from their major sins, right? Mm -hmm. Like, whatever those are. But when mm -hmm. it comes to like systems repenting or corporations repenting or an institution saying we're wrong, it's like, they would rather, I, I don't even know, rewrite the Bible, right? Than like actually admit that, yay, maybe right. our evangelical system is complicit in racism and mm -hmm. in poverty and in power mm -hmm. dynamics. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that mm -hmm. if it's any encouragement, I think a lot of people are finding themselves in you because, you know, there are a lot of us who are kind of waking up to the reality mm -hmm. of everything that, everything that you just said. I feel like all mm -hmm. the listeners are going, yes, like exactly mm -hmm. right. Yes. Like mm -hmm. these, there are systems here that are harming people. And, and mm -hmm. what's worse than that, not only has the, I say the AEC, the American evangelical church, not mm -hmm. only has that, have they been, um, you know, maybe mute, they've been complicit right. in a lot of this, you know, it's not even just like they've been on the sidelines like they've been involved on the wrong mm -hmm. team. So for you, I mean, do you currently attend like a, an AEC church? No. Okay. So I, so, so we were in the pandemic. I did go to a church that I had so much hope for, like mm. so much, like they were, they were listening, but the church started running out of money. And there was one wealthy donor who was very conservative. I mean, this is my interpretation. Okay. No one told Fair. me this. This Fair. is my interpretation. Okay. And, and they started changing. So the, everything that was justice oriented was like no longer important. And now it was more like, let's get more, let's hire more white men and let's not like really center voices. And so I, I had a lot of hope for this church, but started to take a different step. And so yeah. my husband and I started like, okay, well, what's really important to us is following specifically black women. And we want our church yes. to be affirming. Yeah. And so there was an Episcopal church that we started going to uh, two weeks before the pandemic hit. And at least this Episcopal church was being led by um, a black woman and it was affirming, but also a lot of their congregants were old. And so they really just like, which makes sense with COVID just shut yes, down totally. and I, they haven't resumed and I don't think they should. Right, um, right. So we were starting to go to an Episcopal church, but we're, we're also in this space of like, I'm, I, I think even after this year, I've seen the evangelical church be like, uh -huh. don't wear a mask. Like in all the conspiracy theories. Thanks, Sean Foyt. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, I don't know. I don't, think I can go back to that. Yeah, and I actually I interviewed, do you know who Dr. Will Gaffney is? I do not. Okay. She wrote an incredible book called Womanist Midrash, um, okay. which you should check out. I, but I had, I had her on my podcast and I asked her the question. I'm like, do you think 
the evangelical church like can do better. And she's like, no. <laughs> and I said, why? Okay. And she said, because it's rooted in um, white supremacy and patriarchy. And of course, I'm not saying that, but that was an interesting perspective from her. Well, um, that's why and, I asked you the question, though. So yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, yeah. is, does the AEC, can it be reformed or saved? Because I am in the tension of that. Like, mm-hmm. okay, yesterday was Easter. Yeah. I'm a drummer in the church. Mm-hmm. I played three services. Like, that's just what I do. I'm 20 years in. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of good friends in the church who are starting to see what we're talking about being mm-hmm. a thing. So mm-hmm. there are days where I'm like, I think that we can we can fix the AEC. Yeah. And there are days where I'm like, give me the Molotov cocktail because I'm going to be the first one to throw it in the buildings. We have to <laughs> right. burn it all down to the ground. Like, where do you tend to land these days on that question? Can I say I believe in the people but not the power structure? Yes. You can say um, that. <laughs> I believe in the people. I yeah. do. Yeah. I, I've, I've had so many conversations. Like, of, I believe in people and I believe that they can repent and do better. That unfortunately, when I've tried to talk to these power structures, p- particularly pastors, wow, so many P's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot right now. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have been initially, so I did have a lot of hope. So if you asked me this question like two years ago, like, yeah, "Yeah, my, my pastor listens to me and there's like (laughs) steps in the right direction. And then you asked me a year later and I'm like, no, like no one listens to me. I wonder if I'm looking at at, at my future through you right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I, and again, I think, I don't want to say that's all evangelical churches because I felt so much hope and I still feel hope for the people but the problem, I think the the death blow to that church and that church is still around. round. Right, but right. I think what for me was the death blow was they ran, they, they were a um, plant of a bigger church. Uh-huh. The bigger church started to pull funding. And I think they had to like get in line with the bigger message. Yeah. So it was this idea of like, in order for my church to function, I have to cater to who has money. Totally. And a lot of these liberal people don't have as much money or perhaps they're not as giving as much or whatever. I don't know why they made those decisions. Um, But yeah. So I think what happened there is like, I have to be in line with this like big movement of things that I guess I don't think represent the gospel because this is what my funding is coming from. So do I think that like smaller churches can happen? Yeah. But I also think the whole idea of, the way we do church is kind of messed up. Like this idea, like only one person teaches us about yep. God yep. every Sunday when yep. really what I loved about that old church is we used to do house churches yeah. and I could say what I thought and other people could say what they thought. In fact, yeah. one of the most profound things I ever heard was from a guy who was like, it was around Christmas time. And he said, is the story of Jesus's birth any less holy if those two, if Mary and Joseph had sex. And that was like such a good question. But I remember it like, that was a mm. space I could have that question. I don't right. see pastors asking that question. Right. Right. Does it change the deity or holiness of God if, if, it, if it was a result of two humans who, you know, quote unquote, made a mistake or maybe right. didn't make a mistake because he, like right. sex isn't bad. But it was just, it was really interesting. And so we had this thriving justice oriented house church, and then they yeah. cut off the house churches yeah. to do discipleship programs. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Sounds about so, right. Yeah. So they took away our voices. And I remember calling yeah. the pastor and I was like, please don't do this. Please don't do this. I feel like you're taking away voices of the people. And he's like, no, we, I think you should just trust this plan. It's going to work. You're going to see it's right. Yeah. And Unfortunately, that's not what I saw. I tried to believe and I tried to go along, but what I saw was we're going to control your relationship with God because we don't trust you to have your own relationship with God. And that's kind of what it felt like to me. And so if, if churches, I think, move to a place where people are given a voice and it's not one guy controlling the narrative, there'll be a lot healthier spaces. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the reality is that the church structure is really a, a corporate structure. It's a CEO mentality, yeah. lead pastor, mm-hmm. and the Sunday morning event is an event. It, it, it's it's not mm-hmm. a community. It's a spectator sport, right? You go and you you spectate and you you, right. you consume 
and then you go home. There's mm-hmm. no time to right. give back, right? So mm-hmm. I'm with you all the way on all that. Mm-hmm. So, well, listen, I mean, you know, we, we covered so much. I would like to at some point to have you back because I feel like, like the missionary conversation is a whole <laughs> yes. different side yes. that I'm. Mm-hmm. you sound very passionate about. And also, um, I've been rethinking that myself, you know, especially right. with the White Savior Complex. So mm-hmm. I, I want to do this again. But in the meantime, you know, where can people find you? Where can people pre-order your book? Like plug everything about you away. Go for it. <laughs> um, so you can find me at Megan Chance. Anything. My name is hard to spell. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes or on this like thing I'll put sliding. It in the notes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so MeganChance.com, MeganChance Instagram, MeganChance Twitter. I'm the only one. If you search me, you'll find me. Hopefully, good things. I don't know if Google will be like, Megan Chance is a heretic. <laughs> um, those are probably exist too. Um, I sure. try and I try not to like look. Um, but yeah, so you can find me there. You can pre-order my book. Um, if, if I don't know when this is releasing or buy it, and it would honestly mean the world to me if you bought it, it's been, he asked, one of the first questions you asked me is how has it been to write a book? And it's been really challenging, but my goodness, if it makes a difference, it will Mm. all have been worth it. And so if you can get the word out about my book, it would mean the world to me. Um, and, oh, I have a podcast called faith and feminism. So those are all of my plugs. Where can they pre-order the book? Anywhere, Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere like that? Amazon, I think, I mean, I've only uh, tried on Amazon and uh, my publisher, which is InterVarsity Press, but I think it's also Barnes, I think it's everywhere. I'm sure it's gonna be everywhere. If it's InterVarsity yeah. Press, they, they do pretty wide releases, so. Yeah. All right, so. great. Well, I'm gonna put that in. Well, listen, Megan, it was really great having you on. Um, I really feel like we're just scratching the surface. We could be here for another hour or so just talking about all this stuff. But I appreciate the work that you're doing. It is it is absolutely vital. So in the days of discouragement, don't forget that. You're doing great work. And obviously, yeah. you're not alone. You. You know, there's a lot of us who are rethinking mm-hmm. all of this. And there are, there are a lot of men, including myself, who have had mm. quite the you know past couple of years of like really rethinking like, yeah, like yeah. what have I been taught? Like, why can't I be emotional? Like, I cry all right. the time. I was was ashamed about that, but I'm not going to be yeah. anymore. You know, like no, it's normal. You I'm not yeah. going to be. You know, <laughs> I'm going to embrace it. So, um, my point is to say that I, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's so much work for men to do, but I, I personally know of men who are doing the work, and yeah. hopefully that is a small step in the right direction. So, um, thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah. Out. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely.